Hello and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast, your weekly chance to take a deeper look at some of the issues and people having an impact on our lives in the glorious north of England. I'm Rob Parsons, a journalist based in Leeds, who writes about politics across the north for a daily email newsletter called The Northern Agenda, powered by Reach, the people behind the Liverpool Echo and Hull Daily Mail. This weekly podcast is my chance to look in a bit more depth at some of the stories and places you won't see in the national media, but which really matter to our region. A little later in the podcast, we'll be exploring a vital issue for any economy in the year 2023, as developing technology and digital industries, from AI to cybersecurity, grow in importance. Do people in the North have the skills and opportunities to take the jobs that they are creating? And furthermore, why is it that tens of thousands of people in our region are simply too poor to even be able to connect to the internet in the first place? I'll be asking an expert guest in the form of Mo Isab the Salford-based founder of the technology firm in Group, who is responsible for the UK's largest technology skills bootcamp programme. But first, I want to take you back a few days to a major speech by Michael Gove, where the levelling up secretary set out his plan for the government to tackle the housing crisis and meet its promise of building 300,000 homes a year by the mid-2020s. There will be a new urban quarter in Cambridge, we're told, the first area to benefit from a new super squad of planners working on clearing obstacles to major housing developments. And Mr Gove promised investment and regeneration in Leeds and Manchester. But he also name-checked a place we don't often hear mentioned in major political speeches. Have a listen to this. And it's not just Manchester, Leeds, Sheffield and Wolverhampton and existing great cities where we see new opportunities opening in the north. Barrow in Cumbria is the home of engineering excellence the site of significant new investment over the next four decades, and of course it will be building the submarines of the future through the historic AUKUS deal. We want Barrow to be a new powerhouse of the North, extending beyond its current boundaries with thousands of new homes and space for new businesses to benefit from the scientific and technical expertise already clustered there. The Cabinet Secretary will be in Barrow later this week with an elite civil service team to meet with local leaders and the superb local MP Simon Fell to scope out the room for significant further expansion and investment. Because making the most of our science strengths is vital to Britain's future. So it sounds like ministers have big plans for Barrow, a town of more than 65,000 people in the Furness Peninsula in Cumbria, known historically for its expertise in building naval vessels. It used to be ships, but these days, local shipyard run by BAE Systems, which is the largest in the country by workforce and employs thousands of people, specialises in military submarines. Listeners might not know, it's also a hub for energy generation with one of the highest concentrations of wind turbines in the world. But perhaps the reason not everyone knows about Barrow is its geographical isolation on a peninsula jutting out over the Irish Sea with just one main road in and out connecting it to the rest of the country. The travel writer Bill Bryson once famously wrote that it's just about the most out on a limb, end of the line place in England. And it's also jokingly referred to, I gather, as being located at the end of the country's longest cul-de-sac. I wanted to find out more about the bright future Michael Gove imagines for Barrow. And who better to ask than the town's Conservative MP, Simon Fell. So, Simon, welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. Thank you and thanks for having me on. Was it a surprise to you to hear Barrow described as a new powerhouse for the North by Michael Gove. What do you think that means? Uh, so, so I wouldn't quite say surprise. It's been a long time coming. Um, and it's been something which um, I and others, the council, you know, a whole group of us have been arguing for for quite some time. So 
uh, you know, in your introduction, you covered off, I think, the two major points there. So one is, you know, we have this incredible shipyard, which produces, it was once described to me, the only thing that rivals the complexity of a nuclear submarine is the International Space Station. The difference is in Barrow, we produce one every 18 months, and we do it quite quietly in this cul-de-sac in the middle of nowhere that is very hard to get to. And with the Dreadnought program, so that's the next generation of um, you know, what's commonly known as Trident. Um, and then with AUKUS, this partnership we've got with Australia and the US for the next generation of hunter-killer submarines, um, you know, we're looking at multiple generations of work. We're looking at immediately upskilling the workforce by um, around 7,000 people. And we simply don't have the infrastructure for that. So it's about building lots of new homes. It's about improving our road, the longest cul-de-sac you mentioned, the A590. Um, it's about improving our rail infrastructure, making sure that you know, when those 7,000 people arrive, they're not going to be 7,000 individuals. They are 7,000 people with families. There are going to be Australians coming over, learning their trade, learning how to build subs themselves. Um, there are around 400 Royal Navy personnel coming who will be training on the boats as they're being built. Um, and then we've got all these energy projects as well. So it really is a, something of a jobs boom we're facing into in Furness, which is great, lovely problem to have. But we need government to be catching up on that and making sure that we've, we're match fit for when these people come and that you know, we're basically not scrabbling around trying to desperately find somewhere for them to live and that our infrastructure and our public services can't cope with that. So you know, I've been you know, speaking to the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, Michael Gove and others for, for quite some time now about you know, needing to get government into this place where it's not just the MOD hanging, handing over a bag of money and saying, all right, that's it, job done. It's about how does levelling up help? How does the Department for Education make sure we've got you know, a 30-year skills chain so that we're getting the welders and culkers and, and all that in place? You know, how do we make sure that our you know, local hospital, which has you know, been through some challenging times recently, is in the position where it can accommodate all these extra people who are going to be living there? How do we get some dentists in? You know, all, all this sort of stuff. Um, so Simon Case, the head of the civil service, came um, came up last week with about 10 sort of DG level um, people from across uh, Whitehall. And we had a really good session. They went on a tour of the shipyard, uh, a visit round Barrow, so they could actually see some of the real challenges we've got on the ground. Um, and then we all decamped to the town hall. So people from Westmoreland and Furness Council, um, people from BAE, myself and a few others, to, to basically get into the nuts and bolts of what's the start of this plan? Like, what does it look like? Um, so it's hugely exciting. You know, it's the kind of activity that as a local MP you dream of, um, you know, proper spotlight from central government on Barrow and Furness. Um, the trick now is going to be delivering it. Absolutely. And you mentioned uh, the Cabinet Secretary, Simon Case, obviously the most senior civil servant in the country coming up to Barrow. I mean, did you get a sense from him that the government actually does have a plan to deliver the things that need to be delivered? Or are they, is that something that you're kind of working on them with in, in tandem? So, so I think if this is going to work well, we've got to work um, very closely with them. Because, you know, I think the last thing anyone wants to hear is I'm from Whitehall, I'm here to help. And the fact is, you know, the people who know best what the community needs are, you know, the council, healthcare leaders, 
um, you know, highways agency, the people who are you know, day by day dealing with you know, the infrastructure challenges we have. Um, and then again, BAE and some of our other large local employers who are looking down the line at you know, what future expansion might look like and what their needs are. You know, the, the conversation with Simon and with, with the other um, civil servants from Whitehall is about, right, what do they need to do to unlock some of this? So what programs can they bring forward? What prioritization can they put around Barrow? Because um, let's not forget, this isn't just about enabling jobs to be created. The two projects primarily that we're looking at, so Dreadnought, this is the uh, continual sea deterrent. You know, so this is a national endeavor which we are committed to as a nation. We have to deliver this thing. Otherwise, um, you know, it puts our military posture at threat. It puts our um, relationship with the UN uh, as one of the P5 at threat. Um, and it, it puts our national defense at threat. Um, and then AUKUS, yeah, it's a trilateral international agreement. It's a huge embarrassment if we can't deliver this thing. So you know, Whitehall is, is, I think, in the right place now where they're saying, okay, we get why this is important. You know, we, we see we have to deliver. Tell us what you need. And that's, that's a really good position to be in. And, and the, the conversation you know, in Barrow Town Hall last week was just a really open one around these are the challenges as local people we see day in day out this is what we're leaning into um and simon and his team were were really open to to seeing how they could lean in and help and i guess one of the challenges that you've alluded to already is um transport and connectivity and i i was interested that the phraseology of a powerhouse that michael gave use because obviously the northern powerhouse as a concept was dreamed up by George Osborne, about the big cities of the North, Manchester, Leeds, Liverpool, etc., coming together to form one big economic unit with the idea that you could get from one to another very quickly with high-speed rail. Now, you've mentioned it already, that the road and rail links into Barrow are, I think, something of a, a sore point locally. I think there's only one direct train an hour into Manchester, uh, and otherwise you have to go via Lancaster to get anywhere i mean that presumably has got to be near the top of the list of things that needs sorting for if barrow is going to get where it needs to be look you're not you're not wrong and and look my predecessor um had to fight very hard to get that one train an hour to manchester airport that is a significant improvement on on where we are now um or, or where we were in the past sorry um so transport is definitely part of it but but actually you know part of it as well is is changing the perception of the place. So Barrow is is one of those places, and the Furness Peninsula as a whole is one of those places that is really remarkable. So so yes, it is a long way from anywhere. I think um, there was a measure that said that Barrow and Furness is the second most difficult constituency to get to from Westminster of, of all of them, even the Scottish remote constituencies, because at least you can fly there or take the sleeper train. Um, the hardest to get to is Copeland, the one directly above mine, where Sellafield is. Um, and that, yeah, that's an issue. So we need to improve transport. But but it is unique in that in, in, if you travel in 10 minutes in almost any direction on the Furness Peninsula, you hit a beautiful piece of coastline. We are 20 minutes from Lake District National Park. We've got two SSSI sites. Yeah, we've got the most incredible natural resources, but we don't talk about them. 
Um, we don't talk about them at all. And if you Google Barrow, you tend to get headlines that are sort of typical peel and onion, isn't it grim up north? And it's not. It is the most amazing place. So part of what we need to do is a perception uh, thing you know, where we need to lean into the challenges in the town centre and and start to make it look more like the prosperous town that, that really it is now. Um, but your first appearances would not tell you that. On the town centre, I spoke to one person who is from Barrow originally, and they uh, say that yeah, there's a lot of obviously people working at BAE and in in, in the shipping shipping shipbuilding industry who earn a lot of money, but they don't necessarily keep it in Barrow because they don't all a lot of them don't live there; they live somewhere else, like maybe Ulverston or somewhere like that. And I know BAE has they bought up the old Debenhams building haven't they in the center of barrow and they're, they're using it to uh for their office workers i mean is, is it realistic to think that the barrow town center could be revitalized by what you're doing or does the town center have to be revitalized in order for people to to, to get people there in the first place i mean i i do think it's a bit chicken and egg so um you know it's kind of build it and they will come um because like, like we lost debenhams and and that wasn't um, yeah, anything to do with Barrow, that was you know, Debenham's financial situation. But but the irony is, like the wage bill in the local community from you know, places like BAE, from Sellafield, from other large local employers, you know, it is such that you know we could support some sort of massive John Lewis in Barrow, but because there's nothing to prove that that base is there, they'll never consider moving. Um, but you know, we we do have some really positive movement on that stuff. So. You know, over the last few years, um, you know, I've working with the council and, and others, I've managed to secure about 120 million pounds in capital funding coming into the area. So that is through things like a town deal, leveling up fund, um, you know, improvements in road and rail, community ownership funds, stuff like that. And and it's going to make a big difference. So in the town centre, we are completely rejuvenating the market. The, the art centre, the forum is being redone as well. Um, the ginnel at the back is going to have a pocket park and now BAE going in to the centre of town, taking not just Debenhams, but WH Smith, the body shop, the sweet emporium, all that is going to mean there's footfall in town that wasn't there before. So every day there are going to be people tipping out at lunchtime, looking for a coffee, going off to buy some stamps, yeah, ending the day where they might just do a little bit of shopping. And, and the crucial thing with town centres anywhere is actually getting people physically into them. So now we're going to have that. I hope that's going to mark the turnaround. So you'll, you, we've got the investment coming in, spades in the ground now for um, some of the stuff around the market and the levelling up fund. The BAE bit is going to drive the people and hopefully that's going to be enough to really start to catalyse some change. Um, but the other thing there is, as part of our town deal, we're getting a university campus coming to Barrow as part of uh, sort of University of Cumbria campus that is going to bring students to town as well. So I'm I'm actually really optimistic that in the next sort of 12, 18 months, Barrowtown Centre is going to look significantly different to how it does now. Um, and again, that's part of the attractiveness piece. If we can make it look good when people come off the train, when they drive up going for their job interviews, they see, actually, this is a place where I could you know hang out, where I could go for a day, where my kids could come and do something fun. At the moment, that's not the impression you get. So we've got to turn this stuff around. Looking at it from the other 
uh, the, the other direction. I mean, is there a concern about whether the local young population in Barrow are well-placed to benefit from all these jobs that are coming? So obviously a lot of them are very high-skilled jobs. Are, are young people in Barrow getting the the training and the skills and the expertise they need to be able to take those? Or are people from elsewhere in Cumbria or elsewhere in, in the northwest or elsewhere in the country going to have to come to Barrow to, to take them? So, so I think it's fair to say it's it's a mixed picture, but um, we have the most incredible apprenticeship program. So Furness College is, is brilliant. BAE have got their own submarine skills academy um, that they run people through. And like one of one of the really interesting metrics um, for Furness as a whole is that we have significantly below average university acceptance in uh, in the area. But what we do have is a stratospheric number of uh, apprenticeships and it's because people you know this has sort of been long in trail where people have got used to the idea of learning while you earn getting into the shipyard accruing your skills and getting a bit of money in your pocket as you're doing it um, and so the whole system is sort of geared around the apprenticeship model which is which is really really good and it does mean that increasingly we are seeing more and more of our young people getting into local work and getting the skills that way um, and they've got a through line so you know Steve um, Steve Timms who is the MD at BAE at the moment he started his life as an apprentice so they can see that actually if you actually start on one of those jobs you can end up at the top you, know, you can gain the skills and go through um, so I think it's quite an optimistic uh, picture for young people. But but the challenge we have, um, and it's a real challenge for us, is we've got one of the fastest declining populations in the UK. Um, so if young people don't see a future in advanced manufacturing, in life sciences, in, in some of the, the you know, fantastic industries we do have in the local community, they go elsewhere. And they might come back in their 30s and bring their family here because it's a nice place to live, but we lose them for a significant period of time. And that's why getting that university campus in and, and, and trying to broaden our offering is really important because we want to hang on to as many of these people as possible. Michael gave in his speech, he, I think he, just, he said he expected a barrow to extend beyond its current boundaries with lots of new housing now it is not just a, a borough thing but nationwide it is proving very difficult to build new housing and obviously as you've said the furnace peninsula has wonderful countryside uh lots of places that people will want to protect is it going to be how easy is it going to be to build this new housing that michael gove is is, is expecting do you think well that's a that's the million dollar question isn't it i i, I think where we are um, we're in quite a lucky position in that there are quite a few brownfield sites, you know, post-industrial sites from Barrow's heritage um, and Olveston's heritage, actually, where where we can put quite a significant number of homes quite quickly. You know, we need Homes England to get everything in line for to, to enable that to kick off. Um, it starts to get trickier when you get past those sites. Um, but, you know, what we need to be clear about is... We live in a beautiful place. We need to protect that local environment because there are reasons why people want to live here. And some of it is the greenery and and you know the, the Lake District picture boxes or chocolate box images, you imagine. Um, but people also need a viable place to live for their families to stay. And, and, and getting that balance right is tricky. But, but I don't think you'll see the resistance here that you see in you know, talked about in some of the, the southern constituencies where they seem to just be anti-house building full stop. 
Now, just to change the subject uh, briefly, Simon, I wanted to ask you a bit more about a new role that you've quite recently been given, which is as the UK's first rural connectivity champion, which uh, I think is perfect for you as someone who came to politics from a career in telecoms and cybersecurity. So what, what, is it, what does this job involve and why is it, why is it needed? So, well, the, the government's doing a huge amount to try and get people better connected. So to roll out you know, 4G, 5G, and then fiber connections as well. Um, so, you know, you'll have heard various things like broad BD UK, Project Gigabit, all, all those sorts of uh, terms. And take up has been phenomenal since, so since 2017, you know, we have absolutely rocketed. But where we're struggling is to get to those, that sort of final mile, those rural communities where it is difficult and expensive to deliver fibre to them. You know, it is cost ineffective to get mobile signal up there. And, you know, I have plenty of them in my own constituency. So, you know, head up towards Seathway and you have areas with no mobile signal. The best you can do for broadband is a very expensive satellite connection. And, you know, if the mountain rescue team head up to go and help someone, they are literally walking back down the mountain to use a home's landline to get back in touch with their team again because their radios don't work in that area. Um, so we need to we need to deliver on that. And, and my job, so at the moment, this is basically what I'm doing for the next week or so, is meeting with people who are actually on the ground delivering this stuff, digging trenches through fields, you know, who've got clever technologies that can bridge that final gap, meeting with farmers, rural businesses who are struggling because of their connectivity issues and trying to figure out, all right, where are the sharp edges that we can sand down a bit to try and get this motoring a bit faster? Um, you know, we've got some fantastic organisations like Barn who operate in Cumbria who are really good at on a shoestring working with farmers to dig those trenches to get the fibre cables in and they're delivering speeds to rural farms that are faster than you get in central London. Like, that's amazing. So how do we take that model and roll it out more widely. Um, that's that's basically the job in a nutshell. Um, it's really interesting if you're a bit of a geek like me. Um, and what I'm hoping to do is by the end of uh, recess, have a report of some description ready to go back to uh, Michelle Donnellan, who's the Secretary of State for Science and Technology, and, and Therese Coffey, who's the DEFRA, DEFRA Secretary of State, and basically say, look, these are the things I think with relative ease, government could be doing, sending signals, tweaking bits of rules and regulations here to, to get us motoring here and to get some of these people who are in rural communities like mine, who are really struggling to get connected over the line and get them flying again. Wow. So uh, you're giving yourself a bit of a a bit of a bit of a heavy workload over the over the summer holidays. A lot of MPs would just be uh, <laughs> just be spending their time at, at the beach, but not you. No, I, I'm too busy enjoying the uh, Cumbrian sun. <laughs> yes, listeners will probably know that it's uh, not exactly sunny uh, at the moment, but it's well, it's a vital uh, task that you're doing. And um, Simon Fell, thank you very much for your time. Hey, thank you so much for having me on. Now, let's continue the vital topic of digital connectivity, but from a slightly different perspective now with our second guest of today's episode, Mo Isab. Mo is CEO and founder of the technology firm Infor Group, based in Salford, and is responsible for the UK's largest technology skills bootcamp in the Northwest. It's called Skills City. Now, Greater Manchester is the fastest growing 
digital economy in Europe, so we're told. But it might surprise listeners to know that 11% of residents in the region cannot afford internet connectivity, as many as 1.2 million people excluded from accessing the benefits that digital bring. So it's a big issue. And I want to hear more from Mo about what we're going to do about it as a as a region. So Mo, welcome to the podcast. You grew up in Blackburn in Lancashire, I gather. And for people who don't know your your backstory and how you got to where you are today, can you just give us a bit of a potted history about your career? What got you into this particular line of work? Yeah, I, growing up in Blackburn in the, um, you know, born in the 70s and growing up in the 80s uh, to first generation family coming over from India, very much lower working class in, you know, a very disadvantaged part of East Lancashire, which Blackburn is and was and still, you know, continues to be. Um, so we grew up, you know, we, we came, you know, to, 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 to be uh, in that situation, you know, very difficult, you know, but still happy childhood. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, the, re- the, the reality is and was that, you know, the opportunities in education weren't of a level that um, maybe, you know, others in different parts of the world or, or country were benefiting from. And, uh, you know, a lot of us, you know, struggled uh, just for the fact that, you know, we didn't have that uh, fair uh, opportunity in our sort of formative years. I mean, I was fortunate that, you know, I had a bit of, of, of intellect and, 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 and therefore, you know, you happen to be in different sets and you were away from, your friends to, to some extent and, you know, that sort of uh, kept you away from the sort of problems and the difficulties that, you know, most kids growing up with me encountered and, and, and managed to find my way out of the school and education system into a more um, supportive uh, sixth form where, you know, opportunities were much more readily available. But, you know, it was very difficult Time and I look back now, and, and this is one of the reasons why I do what I do, is because to, to this day still there are, you know, it is not a, a fair and level playing field for so many young people uh, growing up in these communities. And, and in, in no uh, sort of fault of their own, it's just the way the situation is. And I, and I sometimes think that it's worse now for, for those young people than it was for us back in the 80s. Well, yeah, I was going to ask, so do you think things have not necessarily got better in that respect. People are poorer than they were. I think from when my father came to this country, he came as a professional. He was a teacher in India, but he then had to don some overalls and work as a textile weaver in a factory for the remainder of his working life. And all of a sudden you went from, he went from being a professional middle-class person in India to a lower working class uh, 12 hour a day shift worker for the for 20 plus years but there were still you know opportunities and and, and jobs and everything else and, and and it was still you know there and, and available but I think now if you're not from a certain background if you're not getting the right education it's in in, in you know it's indelibly more difficult for you to succeed and, and, and not just succeed, yes, people can get a job, but fulfill your potential. I think that's the key, that you know, young people growing up in disadvantaged communities are ones that don't necessarily fulfill their true potential. 
And that's what people don't talk about. People don't talk about the fact that, yeah, people measure success as how many people are in jobs, how many people are needs, how many people are unemployed. But do we truly measure how many people actually fulfilled what their talent was able to do? I suppose that's the uh, at the essence of the levelling up agenda, uh, if, if, if that's still something that uh, is, is mean- meaningful these days, isn't it? That, uh, you know, that talent is equally spread around the country, but opportunities to fulfil that talent is, is not necessarily as, as widespread. And I mean, so you're now the CEO and founder of Infor Group based at Media City, and it's a technology firm whose stated mission is to unlock the potential from within diverse and disadvantaged communities, which I guess brings us back to what you were just talking about. Can you just give us an example of what that looks like in practice, like how, for people who don't understand what that, what that is? So the business model is scale. I mean, it's something that was born out of a career of 30 years in, in business and, and, and scaling and leading companies in the, in the sort of innovative tech sector, as well as, you know, my business partner, Andy, was similarly, you know, from a uh, similar sort of, you know, scaling and, 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 and you know, business background. The, 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 the mission on which we've established Info is, is to say that there is a business um, need to unlock new potential from new talent because particularly from the lens of technology and innovation, we are saturated and this will is hindering the growth of our country in its productivity and its ability to generate uh, you know, GVA and economic output because labor and talent is now more sparse, skilled talent is you know, uh, very, very difficult to acquire. And the price for that talent is going up exponentially, which is now pricing out so many organizations from being able to access that talent. So when you've got that situation, and when we've got a situation at different counts, you know, 120, 150,000 tech jobs being vacant at any given time, you know, you're not going to fix that problem by just doing the same and more of it. But there's this huge potential in our communities of people individuals who could, you know, if given the right opportunity and skills and support, meet that demand and more. So the whole premise of Inform is one to very directly address an economic commercial situation and an opportunity for us, because if we can address that talent conundrum, then, you know, business and and commercially we're successful because we're solving a very, very major issue companies who are recruiting in the tech sector. Secondly, there's a social impact factor here in in tandem, where if you're unlocking potential from parts of the country, parts of our communities that is underinvested, and that talent comes from there, essentially you are then driving a high-skilled economy in that particular community, which then has major impact in a societal point of view, as well as in an economic point of view. So you don't have to do the two diff, you know, separately, trying to do good stuff in a social context and then trying to be a business at the same time. The model, the unique model of import is that we have two balance sheets, which we effectively drive simultaneously. And the success on that is both the business case of unlocking new talent, which everyone's desperate for, whether you, you badge it as EDI or diversity or, or just purely getting more people through the door, 
or you talk about you know how do you affect the disadvantage and 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 the, and the, and the poverty in those areas. Let's look at Blackburn uh, again because I know you, you go back there quite regularly. Like how far from where we need to be are we in Blackburn in terms of or, or, or Lancashire more widely or the Northwest more widely in terms of producing the the, the talent in in the for these tech industries that's needed and what what do we need to do to get to producing the people that the industry requires yeah i think i think it's a look it's 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 the fact that there's been underinvestment in these places for many many years so it's not a problem you're going to fix overnight the thing that we're working on whether it's in blackburn and salford and you know stockport withenshaw wherever else in coventry and elsewhere is that we are able to now give visibility to individuals if they're for instance some you, you asked for some examples you know, we've got career break moms, you know, 10 years, stay at home for your kids, who we're now able to fast track into upskilling as data analysts, uh, software engineers, you know, cloud engineers, and moving into tech roles where they never dreamt that that would be their future beyond being a mom. Similarly, we've got people who were baristas and, and waiters at Nandos who are now able to be software engineers and that's you know what we do with Skill City and our boot camp. So we're able to when you know there are many people, and we talk about talent. You know, there are transferable skills. People have those innate skills. You know, if you look at a stay-at-home mom, I mean, her time management skills, her analytical skills, her you know resilience, her you know problem-solving skills are off the chart. It's just an ability to then say, look, you've got those core and you know, innate abilities if you then learn and apply them into the tools that are available and, and let's be honest the big, big thing about tech people don't appreciate it and people call it coding you know every time i hear oh you're doing coding book we're not doing coding coding is one aspect uh, uh, which is not necessarily now needed to that extent you know you've got now very sophisticated technology let's talk about ai and generative ai it does that for you what you want are people who can understand the tools who can apply them, but also more critically understand the data and how to use them in a productive way that benefits organizations. That's the skill you develop. So now, you know, what used to take you months and months to learn language and coding and engineering, say, oh, no, you can't be an engineer overnight. We're not saying that you become an engineer overnight. What you're saying is you can become proficient in using tools but it's your natural abilities to see problems or to address problems in a different way is what is sought after by organizations. But people don't really understand it because there's a barrier. People everybody think, oh, it's a, I've got to be good at maths and I've got to be good at science. And when you show them that you, you have the ability to solve problems, you can do it very naturally. You learn the tools that allow you to do that, but then your analytical skills are what the company is looking for. That's how you do it. Now, you're particularly concerned with uh, a slightly different issue, which I just alluded to at, at the start, which is digital poverty, i.e. people who literally cannot afford to connect to the internet. And I'm, I'm amazed by how high these figures are in, in the Northwest. I mean, can you give me a sense of why it's such a problem? Well, because people are poor. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, but the poor don't know how poor they are, and the rich don't know how poor the poor are. You know, and then that's the point, you know. Um, that <laughs> where you got kids who are going hungry overnight, of an evening, forget your digital poverty, you know, when they're going hungry, you know, in a first world country, in 
No, we're not talking Dickensian times. We're talking about, you know, real 20, 2023. Uh, and there are kids going hungry, um, struggling to, you know, just get through the week where they've got, you know, full, you know, meal, and breakfast, or evening meal. Um, you know, when, when that, you know, what, what, you know, when you equate that and then you talk about digital and iPads and laptops and internet, you know, for some, and an, an, a lot of kids, yeah, that's like, you know, something that they would, you know, I'll give you an example. One of, one of our recent, um, you know, events we did at uh, Manchester's uh, tech conference, the DTX conference a few months back. And we did a cyber first event, which is young people, you know, girls, particularly year eight, coming from across Greater Manchester, particularly from those disadvantaged communities, having this amazing experience to be in the sort of the biggest tech conference in Manchester, just feeling that they should belong here. And we run a you know event for the day, and then there was prizes at the end. And one of these girls got a, an iPad, and it wasn't an expensive it was an Apple iPad; it was just a standard iPad, a, a laptop, a tablet, sorry. And the following day, the, the school got a call from her mum, and she was in tears, and, and she said, "You know, my daughter and I have been saving up for over a year so that she can get something like this, so that she can do her work uh, of an evening, and she can actually explore this world properly." And she was in tears the fact that she got this as a as a prize. Now, for us, you know, in a normal day to day, you know, those who can, we take it for granted that we have our kids get these devices and da 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 da, and we just take it for granted that you know, look, they're a hundred quid, but a hundred quid to a family who's struggling to put food on the table is like a thousand quid for you know any normal parent. Now, when you equate that to the fact that you want to give these young people aspiration, inspiration, you want to give them confidence that they can make these things happen for themselves, but they can't access the, the basics of this opportunity at home, at you know, in their own time, and let alone that, they're struggling to just eat properly. You know, you know, the thing doesn't add up. You know, you have this whole ambition, you know, to say, yeah, we want to be a nation that is, you know, working for our communities. We want to be a nation that is strong, which can be a leader in technology, which can be a leader in green tech, which can be leading all sorts of things. We, you know, we should be this, we should be that. But then we look at our communities and say, how much are we doing for them? How much are we leaving them behind? And, and this is the real danger, this double-edged sword of technology that, as much as there are winners, there will be some significant losers because when you don't have economic security, you are vulnerable to all sorts of other insecurities, whether that be cyber, manipulation, criminality. When you don't have that, then everything else then is then you're susceptible to. So that's the real issue. And it gets ignored because ultimately, you know, we can paper up over the cracks and say, Oh yeah, yeah, we're doing our best, and you know. But post-pandemic, what I see on on a very acute basis is that there is a generation and more to come who are more worse off. And if you think about the whole adage of saying that your children should be better off than you, then I'm saying that there are three, four generations that are going to be worse off than their parents as they stand today. Just to finish on a, a bit more of a positive note for the the North, uh, Mo. And I, I don't think everyone listening to this podcast will necessarily know this but the northwest has got a a reputation as being a bit of a hotspot for particular types of cyber skills and the uk government's new national cyber force is going to be located in 
Lancashire and GCHQ, the government's listening post, has an office in Manchester. So obviously the Northwest is doing something right in the, in this regard. How, how 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 did we get in how did it get this status and what what more could we be doing to sort of take advantage of you know our, our expertise in cyber security? No, look, I, I mean, we're working very close, and it's a great, uh, you know, look, there's going to be, you know, this three billion pound plus investment in the national cyber force in Lancashire is going to have a benefit to all of the northwest, and there are approximately going to be about ten thousand new jobs that are going to be created as a direct result of this. And they're not all going to be tech jobs. You know, 65% of jobs in the tech sector are non-tech jobs. Um, so you've got all sorts of professional jobs or jobs that are going to give a great career opportunity to people. Um, and, and the Northwest has done that because, you know, we have ambition. We have, you know, let's, you know, organized leadership, you know, uh, which we've worked hard in Greater Manchester, particularly on in Lancashire, in a similar vein, and and you know political leaders who've done a lot of work to lobby and 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 secure that investment. The key for us now in this you know once in a generation opportunity with cyber is to ensure that all of our people have got that fair access to those opportunities. Because otherwise, what will happen and what's happened before? I mean, look, let's be honest. The BBC came to Salford as much as it's been an awesome success economically, and the city benefited. But how many people from around Salford and the, and the and those communities are now actually working, not only working, are, are actually actively leading in that organization at this moment in time, 10 years in? And I'm sure the BBC would testify to the same, that that's not happened as much as what we would wish to. So we've got to, we've got to start with that intent of saying that we must ensure that this opportunity is then available properly to everyone and it's not just a case of saying well we advertise the jobs and then whoever applied got them we've got to work deliberately to remove the barriers which are many times tacit and not explicit but they exist and you cannot just brush them away and we've got to work to that level to ensure that we remove them for young people their parents their families their communities to ensure that they can actually confidently accept and if we do it right in the next 10 years you will see a dynamic in that organization that will be an exemplar to every other invested organization to say this is how you can really achieve you know prosperity for a community through opportunities in technology there's a huge opportunity there to be sure mo isap thank you so much for talking to me today no it's been a pleasure Rob. thank you for the time Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts. See you next week. Bye-bye.